Good morning, Redemption. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mary. Um, I'm a member here, and today I'll be doing our reading, which is going to be from Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was a very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The woman gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there a room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, 
as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, Behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to, sh- to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man 
Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now, Isaac had returned from Beer Lahiroi and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is God's word for us today. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Got a lot to cover. Father God, help us to see the beauty and the power of your steadfast love for your people, which spans the ages. And more than that, help us, God, to be changed by it, that we might trust you all the more with the details of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you could travel in time for one day, would you choose to go back in time or would you choose to go forward? Now, I've thought about this a lot this week. I have to tell you, there are advantages, certainly, to both. Uh, if you go back in time, you could experience some historic and monumental stuff, even the stuff in this book. You could see the building of the pyramids. You could be there to witness the discovery of the new world. You could even go and you could meet Jesus himself. It's hard, hard to beat that. It'd be kind of like one of those uh, magic treehouse books. If you ever hear, read those to your kids, I love those books. But you also have to admit, especially if it's just one day, there would be plenty of perks to seeing the future. And in a lot of ways, it might be a bit more practical because you could see how the details of your life will play out. In my case, uh, how will our adoption go? We're getting ready to adopt a little baby girl from India named Swara. Who is Swara? <laughs> uh, what will she be like? How will our relationships work together in the family? For you, maybe the question would be, who will I marry? Like Isaac in our passage today. Uh, will the Lord bless me with kids? Or how many kids? How many years do I have left? It would be nice to know the details. Well, last week we saw, after miraculously giving birth to Isaac, Sarah died after 127 years. And then the first thing we read in this passage is that Abraham was old, advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in all things, which is great. But remember, the entire series has been about God making Abraham into a great nation in order to redeem and bless all the other nations of the world through him. And so um, there's still quite a bit of work to be done here. He just has the one son. And so as the story continues and as Abraham nears his death and as the promise is not in tow, the question quickly becomes, how will this promise continue into the next and future generations. And if it does continue, we've seen since Genesis chapter 1 that God is working out his plan 
through men and women whose lives are, are sort of linked together in marriage. In other words, Isaac needs a wife. So the last thing we see Abraham do before he's laid to rest is to send off his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac. But there's one problem. She cannot be descended from the people of Canaan, which is kind of a big problem because that's where Abraham has lived for the, the, the latter part of his life in this promised land. The promised land was occupied by Canaanites. And so uh, the last uh, sorry, chances are this was because, the reason it could not have been a Canaanite was because they were in the way of God's people there in the promised land. God had sent them there. But more than that, back in chapter 9, we learned that when these nations started to multiply after the flood, these Canaanites were the descendants of Ham, Noah's son. Ham is the son who took advantage of Noah in a strange, probably sexual way, in a tent, if you remember that story. Right after that happened, here's what Noah said in, in Genesis 9. He said, cursed be Canaan. This is where this nation came from. A servant of all servants shall his he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, the line that leads to Abraham, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is where we came from in Genesis. And so rather than getting a wife from the people there in the promised land nearby, which would have been much easier, Abraham sends his servant back to Haran where Abraham was originally from, which would have been about a 500-mile journey. And he even insists you cannot take Isaac back there. He needs to stay here in the promised land, probably lest he get a little comfortable there and not come back. So right away, it seems very clear, there are some very important details that need to really fall into place here. This servant has to first travel all the way to Haran safely, which would not have been a given. He needs to find a wife fit for Isaac, and he needs to convince her to leave everything, to go to a place she's never been, and to marry a man she has never met. Just imagine being sent off on a journey like that. Servant even seems skeptical right from Jump Street. He asks, well, wait, what, what if she doesn't want to come back with me? Uh, then should I bring your son back? He says, no. Right, so pretty early on, we are supposed to be a bit overwhelmed by all of these details. And then throughout the story, we see God at work in every single detail. And we get to watch as this very chatty servant gets to experience and recount every single detail of this story, which is what makes the passage so long. But more importantly, in this story, we learn something very important about God's heart towards his people. And also, we learn how to proceed when we can't quite tell how the details of his promise will play out. Maybe you're not quite sure if God will provide you with a spouse. 
Maybe you're not quite sure if the children you're raising will ever grow up to know and follow Jesus. Or maybe you're not quite sure how the church today can get it together and pass the mantle on to future generations. If there are any details of God's promise that seem uncertain to you, we need to be paying attention today. It's exactly what we're going to see addressed in this passage. And so with that said, Bible's open. Let's walk through this story together here. And then toward the end, we're going to apply what it is we see God saying in it. The first thing I want us to see is the servant's prayer in verse 12. So right away, to kind of fast forwards, he gets to Haran. He goes to this well where women often will gather. And he prays this in verse 12. He said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Now that right there is the first mention of steadfast love in the entire Bible. The Hebrew word for that steadfast love is hesed, and it will go on to be a central theme throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Tim Mackey of the Bible Project points out that it's kind of a hard word to interpret because he says, quote, it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Hesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the word is most commonly used to describe God's love for Israel, the promised offspring of Abraham, and as we saw in our call to worship in Psalm 136, the truth that Israel often praised God for, for his hesed, was that it never ends. It endures forever, which is to say that he keeps showing it to his people throughout every generation from then and then and then and on into the future. And that whole theme that is prominent in the Old Testament starts here. After the servant prays for God to show Abraham steadfast love, he lists all of these details about how he hopes this whole journey will play out. He wants the right woman to show up to the well where he is. He wants to ask her for a drink of water. He wants her to give him a drink of water, but not only that, he wants her to offer water to his camels as well, unprompted. And then at the end of verse 14, it says, by this I shall know, he says, that you have shown steadfast love to my master, right? If all these details work out in that way. And then something really interesting happens. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Now, this is really, really interesting for a few reasons. First of all, it's, it seems instantaneous. He doesn't even finish the thought in his head, and then boom, there she is. The author also tells us right away that this is a daughter who is descended from the family line of Abraham. She's a distant relative of Abraham's, which we know is exactly the type of woman that this servant was looking for. So it sort of removes that layer of suspense for us. And this family line that is mentioned here 
should sound familiar to us because the author already mentioned this family line at the end of chapter 22, right after Isaac was spared from being sacrificed. And so, as the reader, there is really no doubt, even very early on in this story, that Rebecca will be Isaac's wife. We're meant to see that right away, but the point is this, the servant has not discovered it yet. So in a way, we get to kind of look on as the reader while he experiences the Lord answering every single one of these details along the way, which is exactly what he does. Rebecca is clearly the perfect match for all these practical reasons. More than that, she also happily gets his, this servant a drink of water, and she offers some to his camels. But there's a particular detail that I want you to notice Along the way here, I think is very intentional. Not only does everything seem right here, but on top of that, everyone seems to be running around, checking all these boxes very enthusiastically. Have you caught that? Look with me at verse 17. It says, the servant ran to meet her. Then look at verse 18. She quickly let down her jar. Then look at verse 20. She quickly emptied her jar and ran again to get water for the camels, right? So there's, there's sort of a pep in their step here, right? And then as soon as he confirms Rebecca is part of the family of Abraham, this is what he says in, in verse 26, says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. Think of all the steadfast love and faithfulness that God has shown to Abraham throughout this series that we've seen. He's saying he's not forsaken it. It continues, right? As for me, he says, the Lord has led me in the way to, my, to the house of my master's kinsmen. So now he knows God has been sovereignly orchestrating all of these details along the way of this journey. And more importantly, now he knows this is all proof of God's steadfast love for Abraham. Then it says, the young woman ran to tell her mother's household about these things. And this is where this passage gets pretty lengthy. And the reason, again, is because this servant is very chatty, right? Uh, they set a bunch of food and water before him, and he says, I'm not gonna eat anything until I say what I have to say. And they're like, okay, dude, speak, you know, speak. And he tells this entire story over again in painstaking detail so that this family and we as the reader can really appreciate God's divine intervention. In verses 34 to 36, he recounts God's blessing on Abraham in general so that this family knows who he's talking about, who he represents, so that this family knows how much their daughter will inherit if, in fact, she marries Isaac. Then in verses 37 to 41, he recounts the details of his oath with Abraham to go and to find a wife for his son. Then in verses 42 to 48, he recounts all the details that God has used to lead him to Rebekah and to confirm that she is, in fact, the one he has provided for Isaac. And I love this. And in 49, he cuts right to the chase and he demands a response from this family. He says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me. 
that I may turn to the right or to the left. In other words, listen, let's not waste anybody's time here. I'm looking for a family who has the same kind of steadfast love for my master as the God that I've just described to you. And at first, they say emphatically, yes, amen, right? Look at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered him and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord had spoken. Then they give gifts and they eat a big meal and then they go to sleep. And then after having the evening to sleep on all of this, this is what they say in verse 55. Uh, Laban and, and Rebekah's mother say, let the young woman remain with us a while. At least 10 days. After that, she may go. And that just puts a grinding, screeching halt to all this running around that's been happening in the story. And when the servant says, basically, well, no, don't, don't delay me. God's doing something here. Then we reach the climax of this story. When Rebecca's family says, well, let's just ask Rebecca. Right? And this is the climax of the story because this is when we learn if the servant was right to be skeptical that a woman might go all that way uh, just to marry someone she's never met. This is where we learn if Rebecca will leave everything she knows to marry Isaac. This is where we learn if God's steadfast love to Abraham will continue on to another generation. And as climactic as this decision point is, as, as this whole story seems to hang on this question and all that weight is put on Rebecca's shoulder, I have to admit her answer is incredibly anticlimactic. She says, without delay, very clearly, I will go. That's it. I will go. In other words, I do sense that this man's God is at work here. In other words, I will show steadfast love to he and his son. I will go. This is the ultimate confirmation that God has been at work in every single detail orchestrating all of this. He has chosen Rebekah to be the wife of Isaac. He has led this servant to her. He has prompted her to offer him water for his camels even. He has sent his angel ahead of this servant to make sure that all of these things would happen. And all of it is proof of the steadfast love that he has. Abraham. And by extension, now we learn for Isaac as well, and for the next generation, and for the next generation. As soon as Rebecca says, I will go, notice all the details start to fall right into place. Her family sends her off with a blessing that sounds very familiar to a lot of what we've heard in this series, seems very familiar to what we would expect Isaac's future to play out as. They, they bless her that she would become thousands of ten thousands, that she will be multiplied, and that she would possess the gates of those who hate her, like Isaac and his descendants will possess the gates of his enemy. When they get back, and Isaac and Rebekah see each other for the first time from off in a distance. She says, Who, who's that man over there? And the servant says, this is, don't miss this, he's my master. Which is really interesting, actually, because Abraham has been the master 
throughout this entire story. But, but now that God has shown his sovereign love, now that God has steadfastly provided this wife, now that they will now take over the headship here together of this family and the promise, now Isaac has replaced Abraham as the head of this family and the servant which used to belong to his father is now his. He, Isaac, is the master. This clearly shows that he has replaced his father Abraham. And then Isaac brings Rebekah into the tent of Sarah. He, makes, he takes her as his wife, and it says he loved her. And in this way, it says Isaac was comforted after his mother's death, which also seems to signal the fact that Rebekah has now replaced Sarah as the matriarch of the family. So do you see this? All of the details, every single thing that was not clear and was uncertain in the beginning of this passage has now been addressed here. All of it has been accounted for. God has carried this promise on to the next generation. And hopefully, church, by the end of this story, we see why. Hopefully, we have learned the same happy lesson that this servant would have learned, namely that in every generation... God always shows steadfast love to his people in every generation. His steadfast love endures forever. This is why he keeps the promise going. This is why we could be absolutely certain he always will, even if we don't know the details of it today. It's because he deeply loves the people he is redeeming. And he loves them with a fierce, loyal, and steadfast love. Now, as we keep reading this story, we will keep finding that to be true. In every generation, even in spite of their many sins, God will keep bringing men and women together in the line of Abraham in marriage. He will keep blessing them with more and more children for centuries and centuries until his very own beloved son is born into this family, Jesus Christ. The son of God comes down from heaven looking for a bride. He will teach us that all of his father's will can be summed up in just two commands that we love God with all of our soul, our mind, and our strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. He will show us the greatest, most steadfast love there ever was when he lays down his life to redeem us, and he will gather people up, bless them from among all nations, and combine them together, unite them into a new spiritual family which is known also as the bride of Christ, which is the church. And then later, the apostle John will write these words to Jesus' precious bride to a local church in the first century. He will write to them and call them beloved. He says, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He 
continues. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love, this steadfast love that has endured for generation to generation, that endures forever, that love is perfected in us. Church, the steadfast love that God has shown his people throughout the ages is now alive in us. His son has died and he's risen again so that this love could transform us, so that this love could sanctify us, and so that this entire story could reach its final climax in the ultimate marriage that is the marriage of Christ and his church. And so what does all this mean for us today? Uh, In particular, what does this story reveal about how we should proceed when we can't quite tell how the details of this promise will play out? in our lives. When we, for instance, are waiting for God to provide us with a spouse, or when we are worried about the spiritual trajectory of our children, or if you're a visitor today, while we're just trying to find a decent church to follow Jesus with, here are two ways we can proceed when we don't quite know the details of this promise and how it will play out. The first one is this, let the Lord guide you to steadfast people who love him. Let the Lord guide you to his people. I want you to notice something. God has always had a plan to glorify himself through people. And that's not just people individually in isolation. It's people plural together. And this is why he made us in his image back in chapter one and told us to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with people and families. This is why it's so tragic that we rebelled against him and tried to glorify ourselves. This is why his solution to that problem was to multiply a people and to send us his son as a human person. And this is why when we trust in his son, he redeems us into this family with other people. God is not about rugged individualism. He's not into that. God is about steadfast love shared between people. And there are two primary arenas of steadfast love that are particularly important to his promise and to his redemptive plan. In every generation, they are the family and the church. The family, of course, is very evident here. It begins with this marriage relationship, and it results in children and parenting. The church, as God's covenant people, we see here, it actually started long, long ago as one nation, but now, because of Christ's finished work, we have this new covenant family, which is made up of people from all nations. This is where the promise eventually leads. This is how the blessing of Abraham to the nations is meant to play out and and what it leads to. This is what the church is. These are God's primary domains for steadfast love between people. Uh, They both play a very clear starring role in God's redemptive plan. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul will even give instructions to husbands and wives in that church in Ephesus. And he will say at the end of it, he says, guys, I know it's a mystery, but this whole marriage thing has always been pointing us to Christ and the church all along. Even way back when, when Isaac was looking for a wife, you remember that? That was about Christ and the church, Paul says. And so just to get us started here, if our vision for experiencing God's steadfast love and, and, and for pursuing his promise, if our vision for those things does not major on the family and the church, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. It does not major, you notice, on our careers. It does not major on our possessions. It does not even major on accumulating as many enjoyable experiences as we can in life. Now listen, that may sound heretical even today in our individualistic world, but I have to tell you, the more seriously you take this book and the more you look intently at it, it is profoundly true. And here's why it really matters. Because when we don't know the details of God's plan in our lives, it really helps to know the big picture of his plan in every generation. It helps in a way to focus us. It helps in a way to help us know how to proceed when we don't know exactly how the details will work out. For example, uh, you may have some very deep church hurt. Uh, you may be very skeptical about the many unhealthy churches out there in the world, and there are plenty of them. But if, if we hit eject on this whole new covenant spiritual family thing altogether, if we try to live the Christian life on our own, apart from the body of Christ, well, then before long, the truth is, you will probably either be a grumpy culture warrior or you will be deconstructing your faith on YouTube just like everyone else seems to be these days. See, many of the details may not be clear. They may be fuzzy. The path forward may not be entirely clear, but this we can be sure of. God wants to lead you to a church that is marked by the steadfast love of God. Will you let him do that? Will you be a willing participant in that process? Of course, I also want to speak directly to, to singleness and to marriage here. Obviously, it's front and center in this passage. Uh, and it is hard for us to uh, overstate just how much our culture has influenced our views and our hopes and even our plans when it comes to family. And as a result, it has become very unintuitive for many single Christians to date, uh, to find a spouse, and to get married. Uh, many of you who are single here today some of you uh, have uh, experience with a really devastating divorce that you see in pain and hardship as you try to step out and seek this promise. I understand, and I can't imagine what that would be like to, to, to alter your perspective on this whole passage, really, even, and this whole story. Uh, some of you even are just, just really discouraged by the seemingly endless search for a spouse. Your journeys to Haran don't seem to go like this. Right, uh, And on top of all that, being single can feel a bit strange in a church with so many young families. 
And I want to acknowledge all of this. I, I think we do need to be very intentional about showing steadfast love to our single members. I, I, I hope we're doing well with that, and I would love to know how we can improve in that. And God, truth be told, may call some of you to a life of singleness. He does that. That is a legitimate category. But in light of our passage today, I think this also needs to be said. He usually doesn't. He usually doesn't. Marriage is supposed to be normative. In other words, it should be assumed as the default path for most people. Now, some of you know that, and if anything, to be honest, it makes this whole conversation that much harder. Because it's not the big picture you struggle with, it's the details. When and how is this going to happen? And what you probably need to hear today is something along the lines of this. Hang in there. Hang in there. Trust in this God. He loves you deeply. He wants to provide for you in this way. Or at least in a way that he will make clear in time. But in the meantime, fight the temptation to look for a spouse in Canaan, in the wrong places. Fight the temptation to make the details of this promise happen by settling for a spouse who is not particularly steadfast and who does not sincerely love the Lord. Listen, if that person you're dating isn't smitten by Jesus, if they don't absolutely love our Savior, move it on. Keep it moving, right? Because you have a steadfast God who loves you deeply. And he has shown steadfast love to his people for generations. We've seen God do this in some of your lives here as well, and it's been an incredible blessing to see. And so let him guide you to one of his people. Trust him, open your hands, and trust. Some of you may be on, on a different side of this coin. Some of you may be so indifferent to this whole idea that you need to hear a little bit of a different message today. Uh, what you need to hear today is, let's go. Come on. Let, let's, let's start taking this family thing a little bit more seriously. This is about the redemptive glory of a steadfast God throughout the ages. This is about generations yet to come. Don't just sit back. Don't just play the field. Don't just wait for some fantasy dream spouse to come. Don't wait for every single detail of your life to fall into perfect order so that marriage will require no faith. Take a risk. Find a loyal friend who loves the Lord and marry them. Ironically, uh, I think you kind of need to hear the same application point. It just needs to have a little bit of a different tone. It's just, instead of let him guide you to the people, it's, would you let him guide you to one of his people? Quit delaying. Go to the well. Put a little pep in your step. Say, I will go. 
What I want us to see is the importance of other people in the unfolding of this promise. Whether it's in the church or it's in the family, there may be many details that we are unsure of. But let's allow this God to guide us to his people. And when he does that, next, let's also do this. Let's rely on his steadfast love together without delay. Without delay. See, with this spiritual emphasis on other people and the steadfast love that is shared between us also comes the very real possibility of deep hurt and disappointment and all kinds of trials. I've pointed some of them out. Some of you have experienced this very much. And the truth is, if we are going uh, to continue in this series, if we, if we went beyond Abraham's life, before long we would see that as divinely orchestrated as this marriage clearly is in Genesis 24, it will not be without its trials. But the way forward then will be the same as it is here at the very beginning of this marriage. It is to rely on the steadfast love of God. And the same is true for every church and for every family today. On one hand, these relationships are a sacred display of God's steadfast love when we live by faith in Christ. On the other hand, they will also often be a sad display of our weak and self-serving attempts to love people. If you commit to love others steadfastly, there will be times when for the life of you, you cannot see a path forward when you have no idea how the details of your life could possibly work out in such a way that by the end of it, you will still love that person. We will probably want to leave this church someday when we shouldn't. We will probably, maybe, want to end our marriages someday when we shouldn't. And when that day comes, the most pressing question in our life will be this. Who's love will we rely on? Whose love will motivate us to keep loving? Because church, too often our love is fleeting and faithless. Too often our love is not loyal or steadfast at all. Too often our love runs and hides as soon as the details get a little blurry. But in Christ, we have access to this kind of steadfast love. We have access to divine, heavenly love. And so when our love runs cold or when the details of this promise seem uncertain, let's rely on the love, the steadfast love of Christ together. Like any true act of faith, this will require faith. (laughs) Uh, It will require us to keep loving and to stay committed when it seems far easier and maybe even a bit more safe not to do those things, but we can do them and we can do them without delay. We can do them enthusiastically because this God is totally sovereign. He always has been. And not only that, but he also loves us with a loyal, unrelenting love. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, when we know a God like that, and when we know that he not only knows us, but loves us deeply in this way, and we know that he has this track record 
of providing for his people throughout generations, the truth is, church, we don't need to know all the other details. We don't. For now, it is enough for us to know him. It is enough for us to rely on his steadfast love, the same steadfast love that his people have relied on for ages.